Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R. We've got an hour of science for you now, and on the line is my amazing team. I've got uh, Anu there. Good morning, Anu. How are you going? Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you? I'm good. Dr. Ailey, how are you going? Good morning, Dr. Shane. Beautiful Sunday. I know. Outrageous. You uh, climate people and uh, weather people and people who just love everything to do with uh, all that stuff must be freaking out. Absolutely. No, we, uh, we, we dialed this one up just for you and the <laughs> listeners. <laughs> I bet. And Stacey, good morning. Hi, Shane. How are you? I'm good. I'm very good. It's a great day. Now, uh, we're going to jump into some news real quick. Uh, we've got a huge show ahead uh, today, folks. We're, we're talking to a range of guests about um, pediatric cancer and some of the things relating to that. So pretty pretty serious and heavy show, but it's going to be really good listening. I think you'll all enjoy it. But before we do that, some news with the team. Uh, Stacey, why don't we start with you? Yeah, sure. All right. Well, I've got a, a zombie for us all tonight, today. Um, uh, but trust me, it's 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 not science fiction. It's it's fact. This is a very reputable science uh, program. What I'm talking about today is a kind of environmental zombie. Um, so it's zombie fires, to be exact. So zombie fires um, uh, officially referred to as overwintering fires, and these are the remnant wildfires that remain smouldering underground uh, through winter so hmm. it's not a new phenomenon yeah just a, i think a, a new term a rebranding <laughs> to, right. to uh, yeah to keep the listeners uh, keen but um so essentially they occur in the arctic um, boreal forests of um, alaska siberia and canada's northwest territories and sort of other high area uh, latitude areas of the arctic and um so these are the sort of underlying peak fires that can remain smouldering undetected for days um, weeks or even the full seven to eight months over winter um, and then they flare up again in the next fire season um, and and these flare-ups can be mistaken for for new burns and they come out sort of um, out of the blue a bit like right at the start of, of a new um, bushfire season um, so in the past these types of fires have occurred fairly infrequently Mm -hmm. But we had new research published in Nature this week that's demonstrated that the pattern of these zombie fires, so their frequency and their magnitude is changing. Mm -hmm. And you can probably guess it's not changing for the good. Yep, yep. Even the term yep. zombie so fire, the idea that these things keep going, even though it's freezing cold in some of those areas, is phenomenal. Uh, I know, I know. It's really, it's it's a bit spooky. But what they did is they used 20 years of satellite imagery um, uh, of the boreal forests uh, in Alaska and Northwest Territories of Canada. And what they were able to do was quantify that the number of Arctic fires occurring now in present times is higher than any time since the formation of those forests some 3,000 years ago. Mm. Um, and that rate of acceleration is also particularly alarming. So they looked at the first 10 years in 2000 to 2010 and then again up to last year. And um, yeah, the, the, the number and the, the frequency of these fires is really um, increasing quite rapidly. And the other problem is um, not only are they more frequent, but they're getting bigger. 
So, um, for example, in 2000, 2010, 50% more area was burned um, due to zombie fires than in any previous decade in the 20th century. Um, so, yeah, so they're happening more frequently. They're bigger. And then the other problem is, is that when they do burn, they release markedly more carbon into the atmosphere than in other sort of um, wildfire-prone areas um, because of that carbon-rich peat, right, mm. underlying mm. The, these high-latitude forests. So it's super flammable um, and it's essentially concentrated carbon. And so those peat reserves have been built over centuries. So there's a lot of it and in the Arctic. It um, can be quite close to the surface as well. So what happens when they reignite? Um, they put out an awful lot in the way of carbon. So last year, Arctic fires released around 150 megatons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Um, and so to put that in context, so in Australia, for example, um, that's about half of Australia's emissions due to human activity uh, each year. Wow. And yeah, yeah. So it's 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 quite a lot. And then and if you think about um, in California's catastrophic wildfire season that year, it's about two and a half times the amount of carbon that um, that, that that put out. So um, the authors are suggesting that this change in frequency and magnitude of these overwintering fires is likely to be linked to climate change. So under the current and future climatic conditions, we're probably going to have you know, longer, hotter summers, more frequent um, and sudden heat waves and extreme weather events. And then the net result, obviously, is less moisture and plants in the soil. Um, uh, mm. And it just provides more favourable conditions for these um, zombie fires to reignite. Um, sounds... So, yeah, they did like... You, go on. Oh, it, sounds, it sounds like pretty rough stuff. I, I know, I know, mm. and and the other thing that the researchers were saying is that because um, because they're yeah they're smouldering over for you know over all of winter and they reignite um, at the beginning of the fire seasons and so the fire management sort of up up there is less prepared. Um, so what they were able to show is that um, if we've got like a long and hot summer that has resulted in in large bushfires it was these ones these sort of bushfire remnants that were able to survive through winter as these zombie fires whereas if we're having a cooler summer um any bushfires occurring in those seasons tend to be extinguished for good so they don't really spawn zombies so they're mm. hoping that this kind of research can give fire managers a bit of a head start in spotting and stopping those zombie fires and then um uh, you know, at the start of the new fire season. But, yeah, it, it's a bit alarming. Like, you know, it's always these outlier events that you really yeah. worry about yeah. with climate change and, and these are sort of, this is what we're seeing yeah. more and more of now. Indeed it is. Thank you, Stacey. A disturbing new term that I've learnt today, zombie fires, not one that I was hoping to pick up. Uh, a new, what have you got for us? Well, Shane, before I begin my segment for today, I would like to wish you a happy Bitcoin pizza day. <laughs> my segment... <laughs> I'm not sure what that means. Am I too old? hope you're going to find out because my segment today starts off 11 years ago when the popularized Florida man purchased two pizzas for using 1,000 Bitcoin. These pizzas today are worth over 500 million Australian dollars. Wow. <laughs> And you might have noticed with my Twitter activity as of late, um, interest in the last month has peaked in cryptocurrency with a few events, starting off with a cryptocurrency called Dogecoin, which has been popularly backed by Elon Musk himself, which increased in value by almost a thousand times in the last three months. Elon Musk claims to have purchased about a few Doge, a few Dogecoin for his baby son and his mother for Mother's Day. 
around the time that he um, appeared on SNL, where he was pretty much flogging it all over the place as well, um, there were there were a few other things happening on the crypto market at the same time. About three months ago, Tesla purchased about 1.5 billion in Bitcoin and said that they would be accepting payments um, for the purchase of cars. However, a few short weeks later, they've retracted that and they've said that they will be suspending transactions in Bitcoin and, um, but however, will be holding on to the Bitcoin that they currently have. Now, the Twitter sphere has been in an absolute uproar over the last couple of weeks because in that time, the value of Bitcoin has dropped by almost 30,000 Australian dollars. And the Twitter sphere claims to be um, holding Elon Musk himself accountable for this incredible drop. So as a researcher myself, I became extremely curious uh, around what is cryptocurrency? What is going on? Why is everyone freaking out? What is this value of money that changes over time? And how does it change so much? And what's actually going on? So I did a literature survey of the top 100 most highly cited papers in the um, in the area of cryptocurrency, just to see what researchers were asking, what sort of questions um, were they looking into? And because of my own background in technology and now using artificial intelligence as a tool, I was quite surprised to find that there seems to be quite a lot of material among literature and researchers who are looking into um, artificial intelligence-based technologies, which can do things like manage, um, which, which are using things like deep learning and machine learning to manage cryptocurrency portfolios, which is really interesting concept because we're now looking at um, well, something that is completely decentralized and mm. completely unregulated. Um, and then we're applying even more algorithms to an existing algorithm. And it just seems to be uh, quite, it seems to have a future. There seems to be something going on here. It seems to be expanding um, the boundaries of technology as we know into seeing what, what, what can we, how can we use this in the future? What applications are there? And then applying it across various industries. So that's what's actually got me quite um, excited over the last month. Very and hmm. yes, absolutely. Um, I think that next time, if you know, when I do come back on, I will probably be looking a little bit more into cryptocurrency. And um, now, especially now that Elon Musk has announced a, um, a Dogecoin funded oh, yeah. mission to the moon. Yep. Which will take place next year. So I that's saw that. definitely. <laughs> yep. I'm ready. I'll go. I'm good to go. You'll Still go. Fit. You're good to I go. I can make it. Thanks for new interesting stuff. I need that AI system to run my superannuation account. I'm wasting way too much time uh, on that. Way too much time. I will look into it for you. Please do. Um, Ailey, what have you got for us? Oh, look, Shane, I'm, I'm going back to the, uh, the environmental stuff today. And this is actually a, a new paper that was published um, just this last week in Nature Scientific Reports. Now, I do have to give a full disclosure for this paper because it was done by some of my amazing colleagues in the School of Earth, Atmosphere and Environment at Monash University, in particular, one of our fabulous PhD students. But it was such an interesting paper, I really wanted to speak about it. So basically what they did was they went out to the deserts of... Um, they went out to the deserts of South Australia and just grabbed a bunch of soil and they brought it back. They whacked it in the synchrotron. They fiddled around with it. And what they were looking for was tiny, 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 tiny microscopic particles of plutonium and uranium. Because if you remember, 
The South Australian desert was the site, uh, in particular in the area around Maralinga, was the site of uh, nuclear tests in, uh, I think it was the 60s, up until the mid-60s. Now, the number of bombs and tests and kind of subcritical tests they did in these areas have left multiple Nagasaki and Hiroshima bombs worth of plutonium and uranium. And there's been lots of clean-up efforts, which are, are great. But basically what my colleagues found was that there are still little tiny uh, radioactive hot potatoes sitting in the soil. Now, you know, scientists get a little bit bored looking at these things in uh, synchrotron in the middle of the night, so they actually named these hot potatoes. They gave them names like Chip and Potato Head and Bruce, and they look at these things. <laughs> they weren't <laughs> bored. They weren't bored enough, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, what they did was they had a look at these things and it was always kind of considered that uh, these particles were, you know, in the soil but that they were relatively stable. But what they found when they bombarded these things with X-rays were that they were actually in different states of oxidisation, which means that they were actually more unstable than people thought. So the consequence of this is... Are they actually leaching more into the environment than we had anticipated in the past? Now, it's not clear yet if they are, but that's the implication mm. that, um, you know, when they're kind of dissolved in these, these iron-aluminium alloys and, and trapped in the soils, um, the idea was that, oh, okay, well, they're there, but they're actually relatively stable. If they're exposed to the air, they are actually destroyed fairly quickly. But actually what they found in this report was they're not as stable as we once thought. So, yeah, so the implication is, uh, is it getting into the soil? And particularly for the wildlife and the vegetation out there, you know, these things are, are, are bombarding the area of alpha particles. Is that affecting the wildlife? Mm. Um, so, yeah, so interesting stuff uh, from that research group. And I think uh, they're going to have a look into it a little bit more. Yeah, I think it's fair too that, uh, you know, even with the cleanup efforts, that not all of it's cleaned up given that it was dispersed with, shall we say, a series of atomic bombs. That's right. Yeah. And in fact, what they, what, what they have, have talked about is that some of those particles, some of these hot particles, because of that dispersal, I mean, this happened in South Australia, they've been mm. found as far away as southwest Queensland. Yep, yep. You know, these things dispersed a long way. So, you know, whether we have to rethink our cleanup efforts, um, because of, obviously these particles can hang around for a very long time, a um, very long time. I'm quite happy for the UK to come and collect their stuff, right? It's not yeah, it's, it's yeah. their stuff. It's their stuff, right? Not our stuff, is it? That's right. Clean yeah. up after yourselves. Yeah, yeah, come and clean so, up and your stuff. This has yeah big implications for the owners, traditional owners of the land, yeah. and everything like that. So it's it's rough. All right, thank you, Ailey. <laughs> thank thank you, team. Uh, it's been good chatting to you. I'm going to cut the audio there. We're getting a little bit of feedback, but uh, we will see many of you again in the coming weeks. Uh, thanks for the new segment, folks. We're going to take a break for some uh, music and some important station announcements. And when we come back, we'll be speaking to our guest today, talking about cancer for paediatric patients. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me now, I have three guests, which is rare. I don't think I've had three guests in about 18 months. So let me introduce them to you. I also have another one on the line, which I'll introduce in a, in a moment as well. We have Cindy Bakos, uh, Cass Howcroft and Cass's son, Lockie. Good morning, Cindy. Morning. Good to have you in the studio. Good morning, Cass. Morning. Good morning, Lockie. 
Good morning. See, you're the, you're the one who's perfectly using that microphone nice and loud. I love it. And on the line, we have Sarah Grimshaw from the Royal Children's Hospital and the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. Great to have you. You're, you're in the car. I love it. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> Folks, um, first of all, I'm going to just have a bit of a chat with Cass because this all started, this whole thing we're going to be talking about, which is Little Big Steps, your charity that you've put together. Yep. But it all started with your experience with Lockie. So run us through how, how this all started, this sort of cancer journey that you started on. Yeah, sure. So on the 28th of um, January 2018, uh, Lockie was diagnosed with ALL, Philadelphia chromosome leukaemia. Okay. Um, so from that point, we were admitted into the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, and he went under. Um, he had lots of treatment for the cancer. So yep. we stayed about twelve months in at the Royal Children's Hospital, and he was in a high um, high risk category for the cancer. Yep. So um, yeah, and yeah, we had a lot of time. Sorry, it's quite hard to yeah. sort of talk about yeah. this, but yeah, we had a lot of time in the hospital and. Lockie got really, really unwell, and there was one point um, where he'd been bedridden for two weeks, and he couldn't get up and stand on his own. I had to literally help him stand in the shower, mm. and he's, you know, assisted. And um, you know, as a mother, having all that control sort of taken away from you um, just was really, really difficult. So um, we decided to gift Lockie a fitness watch yep. for his birthday, yep. um, just in hope to try and get him out of bed. And um, yeah, within a couple of weeks, we saw a massive change. So not only did Lockie, um, you know, get out of bed, he was his whole demeanour had changed, and he went from someone who you know was unable to sort of walk or do anything yeah. to want to get out and do his get his get his steps up. And what what did the treatments look like? I mean, I, I think most people, you know, myself included, have been to the, the Royal Children's at mm. some stage. You know, you hear. I've probably done it. You complain because you're in the waiting room too long in the emergency room, and yeah. you might be there most of the night. But mm. when you say 12 months, that's yeah. that's a completely different game. I mean, what what did the treatment look like for his condition? Yeah. So um, he had many doses of uh, chemotherapy. He mm -hmm. had uh, 12 rounds of radiotherapy. Um, so the chemo, although it's really great and it kills the cancer, it really makes the children really really unwell. Yeah. Um, so he was, you know, had he was very fatigued sick a lot of the time he'd he'd have to have a lot of pain meds which included you know morphine fentanyl mm. ketamine things like that just to um just to help with all the side effects so one of the biggest side effects from the chemo is um mucositis right so basically where it's sort of ulcers all throughout the mouth which go down to the back and through to the bottom yep um and it's really 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 painful for the children so yeah. Yeah, it was yeah quite a tough time, and being in there for so long, um, obviously, you know, he was very very sick most of the time. I mean, there was times that we had to have um, oxygen just to help him breathe, and yeah. Um, yeah, there was a few sort of scary scary nights there. And you you lived at the hospital. I lived at the hospital. Yeah, my husband yep. Andy and I we took turns, so I did um, four nights um, on and three nights off, so I could spend some time with my other son Aiden. Yep. Who had just started prep that year, so wow. it was pretty tough for him as well. Yeah. Yeah. Lachlan, uh, what was it? What was it like for you? Do you remember much of it? Um, not really, but it was very painful and tough. Yeah. You, did Did you miss your friends while you were in hospital? You must must have seen a lot of your friends for like a whole year, right? Yeah, but um, sometimes they came into the hospital. Yeah, that's pretty good. And your brother? Did your brother come and miss? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. When sometimes when mum and dad swapped over. 
Yep. And you got your you got your fitness watch. Yeah. Um, we like set goals for every day to get um higher and higher up to a thousand steps. So yep. that, and I'd like walk around the ward and yeah get my steps up. That's great. And did you did you find that that um that helped? Like, did you get out of bed much before you got the fitness watch? No, not at all. Right. And was that just because you were like too tired, too sick, just sad? Yeah. All the above. Yeah. yeah. And then the fitness watch got got you moving. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And then your mum bumped into this other lady, Cindy, huh? Yeah. While we were doing an Easter egg hunt. Oh, you were doing the Easter egg hunt? Yeah. Right. Yeah. We had Batman, Bat, more Batwoman and Superwoman come to the hospital. And, <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> now, Cindy, you you were you obviously weren't just wandering around at the children's. You were you were unfortunately there for a, a similar scenario. Tell us what happened with your daughter. Yeah. So my daughter Sienna was diagnosed with Burkitt's leukemia, um, which was also a very high risk cancer, which required an intensive um, chemotherapy treatment. Mm-hmm. We were in the hospital for six months, uh, not quite as long as Cass and her family and Lockie, um, but yeah, it was brutal nonetheless. Um, we went home once, I think, during those six months for a couple of yep. days but the rest of the time in the hospital as well yep and you guys just bumped into each other at the easter egg hunt yes well yep. Cass was very kind enough to invite all the families that were on the ward to come and join in this easter egg hunt and so we did and um yeah we we just got to talking and sharing in our experiences um certainly my husband and i actually kept ourselves quite isolated from other families we found it difficult mm. enough going through our own cancer journey we yeah. certainly didn't want to be having to go through others as well but um the best thing that came out of cancer was meeting Cass yeah and then you guys set up little big steps tell, tell us about this because this is like this is essentially taking this one this one gift to mm. to Lockie and mm. transforming it into into a charity essentially well Cass and I were invited to a lunch um by another charity which we went, both went to as parents and we got to talking and Cass was explaining what had happened with Lockie um, and with him, him being gifted this watch and how it had ch- changed his life. Um, literally in a matter of days, he went from mm. this very withdrawn, depressed little boy to somebody mm. who is um, finding a bit of vitality, having a bit of autonomy with the gift that and he had. had a been purpose given. as well. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, um, we just said, this is something that we can do for other kids. You know, this was, and it started off as a very simple idea, mm. which was how do we get as many kind of fitness watches on kids with cancer in hospital as we can. Yep. Um, but then we had the fortune of meeting Sarah Grimshaw on her last day before she went on maternity leave um, and she really turned our whole charity on its head where yes the technology and giving it to a child was going to be useful um, what was really lacking was the resources and the practitioner support in the hospital to proactively work with the kids to encourage physical activity so you know the oncologists are worried about you know their their medical treatment Mm. there are physiotherapists in the hospital but often shared between cancer units and others and generally work on a referral basis so you know the kids have got to be in a stage where they just about can't walk um, to get a referral and the idea is that surely if proactively these physios or exercise physiologists worked with these kids to keep them moving in the meantime before they got to that point um, it could be really beneficial Mm. it it seems to me we we have a scenario I mean this is throughout healthcare, and I think you know I'm sure both of you would give a a huge amount of credit to the the clinical teams at at the Mm, children's but you know Mm. keeping your kids alive and, and you know giving them back their lives as, as they once were but one of the things that we see a lot in all clinical settings is a lack of a holistic approach to mm. the way healthcare is delivered and it doesn't matter whether you're getting endometriosis surgery or you're getting you know a, a, a heart bypass or whatever else that that holistic approach is often not on the table because 
you know, to be fair to, to some of the clinicians, they've got one thing they have to fix, which yeah. if they don't fix it, you're in deep trouble mm. and they haven't got the time or the resources, generally the latter, mm. um, to do things in, in a broader in a broader sense. So I think we're going to take a, a short break, folks, but when we come back, we're going to talk to Sarah because she, she delivers the physio treatments um, to some of the kids and so forth at the Children's and is now working with you guys in charity as well to try and turn what is essentially, a, a, you know, an idea was it a birthday present or just a random present yeah no it was a birthday present so yep. um and honestly it was just looking at Lockie in bed you know yeah. just going what well, as a mum what can i do like i've got the doctors there telling us that he has to have this this medication this chemo at this time and just feeling so incredibly helpless and to feel helpless as a mother is yep probably the worst feeling yep. so we just decided let's try this and see if it works and it did so we're yep. very fortunate that he's sitting with us today healthy yep. as ever he's looking very healthy he's yeah. pretty perky very excited to be here folks we're going to take a short break and we'll be back in just a moment we'll be talking to sarah grimshaw from the royal children's hospital triple r on fm digital online and via the app Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Go-Go on 3RRR. Now, we have the founders of Little Big Steps in the studio today, including um, one of the kids that was involved in the early inception of this charity. And on the line from the Royal Children's Hospital and the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, we have Sarah Grimshaw. She's a PhD student, a physiotherapist. She's doing it all. Good morning, Sarah. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Now, tell us a bit about what happens there in terms of um, the kids and cancer with regards to the role of the physios in the hospital. Yeah, so um, I initially was a clinical physio at the Royal Children's Hospital, um, and it's quite a new area. Um, The research is just developing, um, looking specifically at the role of physio for children with cancer, and um, I was actually had the... um, the opportunity to be the first dedicated physio in that area and um, historically what we see in that in is that there's not really a proactive approach which is what Cass had been going on so a real rehab approach where we sort of um, get referred children coming to the end of their treatment and then trying to rehabilitate rehabilitate them at that point mm. to help them get back to life so get back to their sport get back to school and as I was seeing, um, what I was seeing as a clinician was perhaps an opportunity where some of the the muscle and the fitness deficits we were seeing could potentially be minimised if we approached, um, took a more proactive approach and saw them earlier on in their treatment. Um, so I started sort of trying to look at the role of um, being involved right from diagnosis and this concept of um, promoting physical activity for these kids right throughout their acute cancer treatment. And I guess based on the, the, the assumption that physical active activity is great, it's really important for children's development as, and especially so for children with cancer. And this kind of idea really interested me and it led me down to my PhD where I am now. So not really looking at... Um, should we get these children active? We definitely should, but how do we do that in such a complex medical hospital setting? Mm. It, when, when you talk about the reduction in mass, muscle quality and so forth during the period, I mean, can, can you give us a comparator? What, what does this look like for, so say for example, with Cass's son, Lockie, who was in the hospital for about a year. I mean, 
what, what, the, what exactly does that do to the body over that period where they don't have the normal activity? I mean, we hear a lot of people at the moment talking about the effects of lockdown on all our kids. I mean, that's kind of a light <laughs> version, right? But we hear about it all the time. I mean, what, what sort of reduction in capability are we looking yeah. at? So there's been lots of research done into long-term effects of a childhood diagnosis. And what mm -hmm. we know is that adults who have gone through cancer as a child um, have much more sedentary lifestyles, there's greater risk, chronic health disease, um, they have reduced fitness, often in community, a whole host of um, issues that can impact their day-to-day -day living. And with the increased survival rates, this is becoming a, an increasing problem because we've got more children um, surviving their cancer treatment, but we're really needing to look at the quality of their life in that survival period and yep. trying to um, find solutions of how we can improve how they get through cancer so that, that they can pick up their lives and have a more fulfilling and, um, and healthy life after, after it's completed. Yeah. Is there is there a difference in the way we're currently treating patients, um, adult pa patients of cancer and, and kids? I mean, I, I, I know a, a friend of mine had esophageal cancer and he had quite substantial physio support um, during his, his recovery. That, that seemed to be like a, a standard thing. And I'm not sure if that's that's widespread or whether it's um, just, you know, a unique situation or not. It's really mixed. I think... Um Adults and ex adult cancer and exercise and physical activity is a little more progressed and I guess that can be a product of um, it's a little easier to research because of the large numbers. With paediatric cancer, it's very challenging. There's small numbers. It's very hard to do um, sort of powerful, rigorous studies mm. in paediatrics. And um, what we're finding is that it's very uh, hit and miss. Depending on the hospital, the Royal Children's Hospital, we now have... Um, a dedicated physio service, but it is still quite reactive and it's still referral-based. So there's not much time to do that proactive promotion of physical activity. It's it's still very much um, let's it, the children get referred with an impairment or a, a significant deterioration in their physical function and then they'll access physio services. So there's still a way to go. In other hospitals around Australia, even at large treating centres, they still don't have a dedicated physio service. So it's still very much a new area where um, there's work to be done to, um, I guess, improve access to the services that these kids need. Um, just given the complexity of this, the setting that they're in, physical activity for most children and families would seem not, well, not, not, not important, but sometimes impossible. And you're also, um, historically, it's such a medically focused setting and yeah. there was um, uh, a real focus on rest and keeping still and the, the kids are very sick and you need to stay in bed. So you really, um, it's not just um, promoting it for the families and trying to get confidence, building the family's capacity in feeling comfortable and confident to promote physical activity. It's also overcoming all the challenges within that environment, the hospital setting. How do you get a child yeah. active who's attached to a line, who's feeling nauseous, who doesn't have access to their friends and sport and, and all their normal social activities? It seems genuinely impossible sometimes yeah. and they just need so much support. But in line with that, there's also all the education of the nursing staff and the medical team because 
everyone is so focused on the medical treatment, which is imperative, but there are opportunities for movement, but it needs to be a real team approach and everyone needs to be um, promoting it and, and, and helping out so that it can be, so that the environment is, um, can be changed. Yeah, and we uh, more, yeah, more but, supportive of physical activity. Yeah, and and I think um, you know nudging nudging the health system to make change in any regard can be a, a bit of an uphill <laughs> battle in my experience. It, just just before we let you go, Sarah, you're the recipient of one of the first research grants um, put out by Little Big Steps. Um, tell us yes. about that. What you're doing with it? So it's um it's quite amazing amazing this interview listening to um Pass and Cindy's story because um I met them sort of midway through my PhD and we've really been um focused on this concept of physical activity behaviour and how do we change it, how do we promote it in such a complex setting and had sort of landed on the idea of the the benefits of an activity monitor. Um we did one study looking at the experiences of families in the and in their experiences and trying to keep physically active and it was well beyond just an experience of um their children being like weak and, and unfit it was so complex the environment um there's issues with motivation there's um children and families feeling just scared to move and and scared to and just not knowing how what to do to promote physical activity so a big part of what we're doing, we're actually using Fitbits and activity monitors to set goals and we're partway through the trial now where um, we give really supported support um, to family, families and children to problem solve their environment. How can we just put more movement into your everyday and reach this goal that we're setting um, to try and, I guess, reframe exercise. It doesn't have to be strenuous. It doesn't have to be weights and fitness mm. it can be just day-to-day movement and that's really been the focus of our our projects in that um in the hospital setting yeah. well thanks so much for chatting to us sarah good luck with your ongoing work of your phd and all this amazing stuff you're doing it's um it's impressive and have a, have a good day I know, I know you're in the car there because you're having a few days off so have a, have a good time there enjoy yourself <laughs> thank you very much thank you well, um, folks, we're going to take a, a break for some music and we'll be back in a moment. We're going to continue this discussion with Cindy Cass and Lachlan. We've got them till the end of the show. You're listening to Einstein the Go-Go on 3RRR. RRRR on FM, digital, online and via the app. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me today is Cindy Bakoff and Cass Howcroft and Cass's son, Lockie. We've been talking about pediatric cancer. It's a pretty um, pretty big problem affecting a lot more kids than most people realise. Now, Cass, you mentioned earlier in the show that you were in the hospital for a whole year mm-hmm. with Lockie. What was it like when you left? Yeah, so we had... Oh, look, probably not even a handful of discharge. Every time that we'd leave, Lockie would spike a temperature and mm. we'd be back in the emergency room and then be re- readmitted. Yep. Um, it was tough. We would go home and, I mean, look, the hospital became your comfort zone, you know. Yep. You got friendly with all the nurses and the doctors were there and if anything was to happen, you know, you know that you're in a really safe place. Um, when we were discharged, it was up to Andy and myself to be the doctors and the nurses mm. and administering medication and making sure that we're getting that right, you know. Um, and we are you know, giving him some pretty heavy-duty stuff, you know, yeah. um, 
chemo that we had to administer wearing rubber gloves because of the toxicity and, wow. you know, oxycodone and just stuff that you just never imagined to give a child. So, sorry, you mean toxicity to you and your husband? Yeah. So you couldn't even touch the stuff because no. it would make you guys sick? Yeah, that's right. And you're pumping that into your, yep. into your kid? Yeah. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so being home, like I personally, I hated it. Mm. you know going high. I mean I loved the fact that we're in our house and I was with my other son Aiden and we're all together as a family but the stress that it put on to me and to my husband Andy was just unbearable yeah so going back into the hospital you know it felt safe and especially when he was on his high um, high doses of chemotherapy so yep. do that sort of weekly um, and then have a break and then on again and then have a break it was just I ended up saying to the our oncologist um, who was amazing by the way Di Hannah from the Royal Children's Hospital um, just said to her that we just we need to stay here because mm. you know it's just having the care at hand was just much easier for us and yeah i mean look he had to be there anyway so it wasn't a, a matter of choice but yeah. yeah it was definitely difficult going home yeah no it's, it's interesting hearing that because I, I, su I suppose most people when they get the the possibility of discharge they're excited and you know they, they want to go home but that, that scenario of, of the support that you would have had yeah. just sort of suddenly vanishing i mean i know i know you could always go back but you yeah. know that that even just going to sleep at night must have been pretty tricky at first well it was and you know we had many nights where Lockie would just sleep in our, right. our bed with me just so i could keep an eye on him make sure that he was breathing and you know yeah. um so there's a lot of sleepless nights and the thing is is when you're staying in the hospital you know, you're awake probably four or five times, you know, throughout the night with the machines going off and things like that. So when you're at the in your own bed in the quietness of your own house, it's it's actually quite um, difficult. And I'm sure that many parents would agree who've had a child go through cancer. You know, you get PTSD from those buzzings mm, of the of sure. the machines. It's you yeah. know, it, it's it really um, yeah, it's really quite full on. So. Yeah, Cindy, you you um, were in for a shorter period of time, but your your daughter was a lot younger, wasn't she? Tell us about that. Yeah, so. Sienna was two and a half um, when we were admitted into the hospital, right. um, so so quite young. So keeping her active was probably a little bit harder because she was she pretty much just learned to walk, you yeah, know. Right. Um, and then she spent six months in in a bed. But you know, we we inherently knew that. Uh, exercise was important and good for her to do. Um, so my husband Bo, we used to take turns stay on one night on, one night off. Mm -hmm. um, and my husband Bo used to bring my daughter Stevie Grace to the hospital every afternoon after school. Um, and that was really the time that Sienna and Stevie Grace would play together. And there was a toy room with toy cars and they used to race up and down the corridors on these toy cars. So, you know, that was very special sibling time. Yeah. Um, but it was a great chance for, for Sienna to be a little bit active. Um, and Stevie Grace used to walk her to the the far side of the ward um, to go and see the rabbits outside the window. Oh, yeah. yep. um, you know, we never let Sienna know that she could actually see the rabbits out of her own bedroom window. <laughs> um, and that was deliberate because it, you know, it encouraged yeah. her to have to walk along with us to the window to go and see them. Um, yeah. yeah. And Stevie Grace must be uh, older sister. Older sister, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah taking she, care of her. Yeah, you know, yeah. we just actually, my husband sent through a photo the other day um, of the of the four of us when we were just released from the hospital. Um, and we actually can't believe how young Stevie Grace yeah. was. You know, that's quite something. And I mean, it would have been the same for Aiden. Mm. You know, really, really young people that are dealing with some very heavy stuff. Mm. Um, but Stevie Grace was amazing. She actually did, um, she wanted to raise some money for the Good Friday Appeal. Yep. Um, and so she did a fundraiser through her school and she managed to raise $13,000. So $13,000? $13, $13,000. I mean, there was a little bit of help, but it was all, all coming from her and she really ran 
design it and did it all with the school. Wow. Um, so it was really, you know, it was, and it was such a proud moment for us, to, for her to have a moment to shine yeah. through all of this. So. Yeah. That, I mean, that's an extraordinary, that, that's an extra, I thought you were going to say 150 yeah. bucks at no, $13,000. Wow. She's quite an extraordinary yeah. child. Yeah. Now let's talk a bit more about the, the charity that the, the two of you have set up, because mm-hmm. this is something that's obviously pretty substantial now, and it's, it's got activities across the country. So, so what, what exactly are you doing? Yeah. So as I said, we, we started with a, wanting to just give some fitness watches to the mm. 900 new kids who get cancer every year um, and it's now grown into something quite significant where we're wanting to fund um, a proactive physiotherapist or, or exercise physiologist in each of the major cancer centres around the country. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's eight major paediatric cancer centres um, that we're wanting to get a part-time position funded in. Um, so obviously that takes quite a bit of money to get there. It's no longer just a few hundred fitness watches that yep. we need to get out. Yep. Um, but, you know, as, as we mentioned, we funded um, Sarah's uh, research project. So that was the first grant that we gave out. And then last year we ran a competitive grant for a um, clinical program, exercise medicine program, which has a research component to it. Um, and two hospitals that were um, were awarded the, the grants from us um, was the uh, women, Women's and Children's Hospital in Adelaide and the Sydney Children's Hospital in Randwick. So both of those, the one position in Adelaide has just started. She started two yep. weeks ago. So really, really exciting times. Um, and yeah, the Sydney one's just going through final stages of recruitment. Yeah, incredible. And so let me just get this straight. You you both started, the, I know this story, but we'll t- mm-hmm. so that everyone else knows it. You started this while you were in, in the hospital. Like you, your kids were getting treated for cancer. And what, you just had some spare time in the corridors, so you thought you'd start up a charity, yeah. is that? I mean, I think uh, Cindy had just been discharged yeah. with Sienna. Um, but yeah, Lockie and I were still very much, well, Lockie was still very much undergoing his treatment. So we had about six months in the hospital. But look, to be quite honest with you, I think it was, um, although, you know, starting a charity is not a small thing, um, it was a really good distraction and you know what like cancer sucks at the end Mm. of the day but you know for something if we can help other kids going through this horrendous disease then that's something good that's come out of a really really tough situation for our family both our families so um yeah it was good and look you know it was nice cindy would come in with you know her coffee we'd sit down on the computer and you know and Lockie helped out with some of the you know marketing stuff and yeah it's been yeah it's been good it's been a good sort of there were some days we did think we were absolutely mad yeah, um, yeah. but you know we've come <laughs> sure. through the other end and I think possibly the, the biggest challenge now is that as we're leaving the cancer behind us a little bit mm. more and more as our children are getting healthier um, you know it's we're still very much involved in it but again like Cass said knowing that that what we're doing has a real chance to make positive impact on these kids um, we've got a very clear focus in wanting to get these exercise medicine yep. programs wanting to encourage children who are going through treatment or off treatment to be you know really um, phys- physically rigorous activity mm-hmm. so yeah yep. and also I think it's educating the families you know is a really big thing because you know when you're in the thick of it in the thick of cancer basically yep. you, it's just a big fog and you don't know which way you're going so you know you've got the the oncologist that are telling that are there to save the kid's life and that's fantastic and mm-hmm. they all do an amazing job but having the education to say that it's actually okay to get out of bed and get them moving and it's actually going to help them long term yep. you know and a lot of families unfortunately you know it's just they don't have have that so. yeah it, it's incredible how this has changed over the years too because in not just in the area of cancer but in so many other areas of healthcare, 
the idea of movement as a way to, for the body to help repair itself has become you know, more and more standardized yeah. as, as, as normal rather than, you know, I, I, completely unrelated. But I had this conversation with my brother once when he, he did his back out and he was in the hospital you know, as a result of that. And I, I said, you know, what, what's happening? And he said, oh, you know, I've got to lay here for a few days. I said, no, 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 no. Mm. You, need to, you need to get up and go for a walk. You know, mm. you need to move. Mm. And, you know, that's because, but it's not everywhere. It's not across the board. There's still a lot of clinical services that aren't pushing out as much as they could. And I mean, the biggest thing as well, whilst they're going through treatment, is that there are so many nasty side effects from, mm. from chemo. Um, and physical activity and exercise is the one thing that can combat most of that. that yep. Can yep. help with the fatigue, can help with the, you know, the muscle mass that they're losing, can help with the nausea. So, you know, it's got really promising benefits that come from physical activity, yeah. but you need the assurance to know that it's, it's safe. safe to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Lucky, you're, uh, you're now doing karate and all sorts of things, yeah? Yeah, um, I was, we're doing, I'm, me and my brother are doing karate, yep. and, um, I was playing basketball, but the season ended, yep. so, um, I'm gonna play another sport, but I don't know what I'm gonna play yet. Well, it's Sorry. great to hear you doing that. It's like you've got two mums here, isn't it? Like, <laughs> is, is it? Is it hard having two mums? Are they both bossing you around a fair bit? Um, yeah, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I bet they are. Now, uh, Cindy, why don't you tell us, with regards to the charity and how people can support that, where do they go and what do you need? Okay. Um, so the website address is littlebigsteps.org.au. Um, and, you know, certainly last year was a very tough year for all charities in terms of fundraising. Our gala dinner that we used to hold an hold annually, we couldn't hold it last year and we decided to postpone it this year as well. Mm -hmm. um, so whilst we've been very excited to be able to give these two grants this year, for us to be able to do another grant round this year, we really do need um, donations in order to, mm -hmm. to help us. Basically, $130, that every $130 that gets donated gets a Fitbit onto a kid um, in hospital. So... You know, we ask for as little or as much as you can possibly give. But, yeah, certainly the financial contributions at the moment are essential for us to keep yep. going. Now, we, we set this interview up several months ago. We agreed to do that. And since then, <laughs> you guys have been kind enough to essentially appoint me as your new CEO, which we're kind of announcing right now. Yeah. Um, it doesn't start until July, but a lot of people listening to the show know I've been at the University of Melbourne for like 27 years, and mm -hmm. I, I left uh, about a month ago. I was looking for something new that was, you know, meaningful and, and part-time. <laughs> I didn't want to work as much. Um, and, and we're doing this. We're, we're going to be working together, which is yeah. oh, look, it's, a, it's a massive milestone for Cass and I, um, and to trust somebody to take over our baby, essentially. <laughs> but, you know, we both, from the minute that we met you, Shane, we knew that you were absolutely the right person. Our board fully supported that um, and we just can't wait for July to roll around um, you know Cass and I will obviously still be very heavily involved in supporting you as the founders um, but for somebody to take take our charity to the next level we've certainly got it to this point and we really believe it's going to take somebody special like you to take it somewhere well, else I'm pretty good at bossing clinical people around like <laughs> and I'm okay at getting money but you know sometimes health healthcare is like I always think of it as this giant super tanker and there's someone at the back with a little rowboat trying to redirect it you know and, and it's 
it's, it's, it's tough, but you can you can do it if you get the right evidence behind you. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, that's why it's so important that all of the positions that we're putting forward have got a research component to it, um, yep. you know, to be able to show that evidence. Um, it was very frustrating for Cass and I in the beginning, learning how these big um, hospital institutions work and how slow decisions are yeah. to be made. I mean, we had the money back in 2018 when we first started the charity ready to go to just give but it's not that easy um, but you know we're really glad it's actually taken the time it's making sure that things are in, are in place that the positions are going to be able to be sustainable or pilots or however we set it up yep well look it's it's an amazing achievement all of you have you know managed to get to this point little big steps is is an organization that you know it uh, people know i don't endorse organizations on this show i never do but i'm very i'm very happy to be coming and working with oh, all wonderful. of you, you can't wait. um it'll be cool and I know you're already throwing work at me and I haven't even started, which is, uh, I guess that's the charity part of it. But it's, uh, it'll be fun. Um, it's great to have met you too, Lockie. Thanks for coming in and being on radio today. You're welcome. It's so well spoken. Yeah. So well spoken. It's great. Um, thank you for folks, having us. Yeah, thank um, you. Thank you, Cindy. Uh, Cindy, thank you, Cass. They're all in front of me. Uh, and thanks to Sarah Grimshaw for talking to us from the RCH today as well. We've got a handover now to the team from Eat It. And um, believe it or not, folks, if you haven't worked this out from my Twitter feed, I'm going to go and get married soon um, most people said aren't you taking the day off from the show I said no there's really important guests coming in today so I, I had to come um, but I'm off to do that enjoy your Sunday remember science is everywhere and we will chat to you again in about a week's time hi this is Dr Shane thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne Australia every Sunday Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteinagogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.